Welcome, my friends, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, special guest Julia Jaguer, our industry lead on healthcare, joins Matt Muscardi and me to discuss Fitbit's partnering with Singapore's Health Promotion Board to track and provide users with more healthcare options. And then Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall give me their quick take on the Business Roundtable's announcement that corporations should care about more things than just shareholders. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. All right, so Julia, thanks for joining us. By the way, Julia has written extensively on the healthcare sector, reports which you can access if you are subscribed to MSCI ESG Research. She's also just a veritable expert on healthcare in general, and she's an excellent all-around person, and I'm lucky to have her here to discuss the announcement on Wednesday that Fitbit, a San Francisco-based electronic equipment company, is providing wearable health and fitness tracking devices to Singapore's Health Promotion Board. Fitbit will provide their wearable trackers free of charge, but Singaporean users have to buy into a service called Live Health SG for 10 Singapore dollars, which is $7.23 US per month. This program will coach the users through their health goals and make everyone healthier, basically. And the subscription model is where Fitbit actually sees its long-term growth residing, according to an interview with its founder on CNBC. But before we go into what that means, our quick stack card for Fitbit Incorporated. One part of MSCI ESG research is to rank companies using an ESG methodology. We rank them on a AAA to C scale, and Fitbit is ranked at a double B, which is actually lower than a majority of the electronic equipment industry. But for this story, what's important to know is that Fitbit, by our measurements, does not have a great governance structure in place, but it does have really good privacy and data data security measures. So there's that. Okay, so I think we have two colorful ESG lenses with which to look through. First, are wearables the future of healthcare? Because there are studies that show they aren't that great at measuring your activity because their heart rate readings are affected by movement. And then there is this anxiety around providing a government with personal data, which I know we will not be able to resist talking about almost immediately. But still, first things first, Julia, the Fitbit wearable itself. If there are issues with its measurement capabilities, are these really the future of modern healthcare? And if so, what type of usable data can they provide? It's, it's probably a definitive yes um, in that sense. I mean, we're seeing wearables everywhere. Um, there are projections that it's going to double by um, you know, 2030. But I think more importantly, um, what you said about making everyone healthy. And I think I want to question that a little bit because what it seems to me that the Singapore government is really interested in is not necessarily making everyone more healthy, like you said, because, um, you know, you're right. The data is, the data isn't great. Um, you know, there have been randomized clinical trials that are looking at diabetic patients. Um, and there's really no difference in terms of does it increase their physical activity? Um, does it not increase their physical activity? So I think it's pretty fair to say that, um, you know, they don't necessarily work or that the data is, 
is inconclusive in that and that there need to be more studies. But my guess is that the Singapore government is really actually using this not as a workout buddy, but it's using it as a medical device. And, um, you know, these wearables, they're getting, they're getting really more advanced. Like, so um, the key is really just that the, you know, the Apple Watch, it, you can detect a, sp- a spike in heart rate really quickly. It's, it's great at essentially, you know, tracking a heart attack before it happens. Or, you know, if you're a diabetes patient, really monitoring your glucose levels in a real in real time so that at the end of the day, you're not going into a diabetic coma. All right, so if I'm understanding you correctly, these devices aren't improving in terms of being good fitness tools, but they are becoming more sophisticated preventative medical devices. Is that fair? Yeah, so they're so I would say they're they're questionable or they're not great at getting people to become more active or getting them to become more fit, if you will, but they are becoming really quite sophisticated in their ability to act instead, not as a workout buddy, but really as a medical device that you're wearing, that you're, you know, you're constantly monitoring your heart rate, you're constantly measuring your glucose levels. And that makes it not a workout buddy, it makes it a medical device. Um, And you you can make sure that you are intervening before the heart attack occurs rather than after. And if you get an intervention more quickly um, in a more timely manner, then A, your outcomes are more likely and, and, you know, more probable of actually having a better outcome. Your mortality measures um, are better. um, And you also, you know, are going to save costs because you're not running to the emergency room. And, um, you know, I don't know about the Singapore government, but in the U.S., hospital costs are the most expensive, right? So they they comprise about, you know, 30% of overall healthcare spending. It's not drugs. It's not prescription prescription drugs. It's hospitals. I'm, um, I think all that, I think on the, like the actual health side, there is sort of a fascinating upside, but it's hard for me to disassociate it from the dystopian downside, which is, yeah, let's get into the data. So, so in at the end of 2018, Fitbit actually announced a partnership with John Hancock uh, for life insurance policies, uh, in which they um, they will track the health data of users, and it will be used to like inform your life insurance. It's uh, they were calling it um, uh, interactive policies, track fitness and health data. Um, through wearables and in smartphones um, and they're bundling all their policies with a program that basically you know sets up discounts if they get healthy but it's all really I mean I like there's a natural business reason to do this but it is very big brothery isn't it it's I, I while I would like to believe that like you know, if you're a government like Singapore, you're invested in the health of your citizens, there does seem to be this double-edged sword of, well, you also are trying to track your citizens. When is the upside not worth it? And is it not worth it from an investor perspective or a consumer perspective or just kind of like a social dystopia perspective? 
which makes me want to crawl in a cave and eat fish heads by myself. But can we all agree that, I mean, I guess I, I totally see your point, but um, I, I think the, I mean, governments, at least modern governments, I, I, I think we can all agree that they have, they know everything about us anyway. Like they can tap into our phones, they can turn on our video, um, you know, they can turn on our audio. So I think if we can agree at least that modern governments have that capability anyway. So the question then becomes, you know, is is it actually more of a, a data or privacy risk if governments have, have your data or, or corporates? Um, and I would actually argue it's, it's more on the corporate side because the government, number one, modern governments, they probably have that data anyway. And I don't think that um, having the data on your heart rate and your glucose um, you know, is, is, is really all that different than what they would have on you anyway. I mean, what it is is giving you a real time measure um, with with re- relation to your health data. So and that and that can actually really improve health incomes. Uh, sorry, health outcomes um, and mortality rates. All of that is is true. But to, like, if you're an investor, do you basically just say, "I need to"? This is the world I live in. I'm investing in it. And I want to just identify the companies that have the strongest privacy protections. Or do you say this world is not a sustainable data? Eventually, individual personal data is eventually going to be a stranded asset is eventually going to be something um, where Facebook is facing this right now, where uh, it's harder for them to do business using um, you know personal data, particularly in Europe, because of the regulations there and the data is our, our individual data is likely to become stranded for for use. I mean, which one do you do? Well, I think you both actually bring up great points. And I think whenever we've been having this conversation, usually on this podcast, we've kind of wrestled with the negative side of, of the data since there's been so many breaches and, and compromising personal data. And I think it's good to wrestle with this mucky reality we are in where, Matt, you point out that we're providing a lot of data to companies, both voluntarily and involuntarily. And we are living in this capitalist society where if there's money to be made off of our private movements, they can and will be sold for gain. But Julia, you bring you bring up a point we don't usually discuss, and it's that if this data can be used for preventative measures or something good, then maybe the anxiety, maybe the massive societal anxiety we have is sort of unfounded. Um, in so, in in so many ways. So, is it fair to say, Julia, that while this data can be used for good, it can also be appropriated in ways Matt is worried about? For example, if this works well for Singapore, which has universal health care, and it is adopted in the U.S., which doesn't have universal health care, could that create a situation where insurance companies start to get a hold of the data and use it to price insurance premiums and? There's a backlash against companies like Fitbit and Apple for helping insurance companies raise prices. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it, it's not a question of it's already happening, right? Um, it's already happening. Uh, Aetna, for example, as I mentioned earlier, right, they have the the Apple Watch, um, so they are essentially giving their insurance customers, um, you know, this Apple Watch, and if they meet performance metrics, um, and they monitor all that, you know, where that data goes, obviously the, the goes, it goes to Aetna, the insurance company. Um, but I mean, I think the beauty of it is at least in the U S, um, you have the affordable care act and with the affordable care act do come certain protections as well, which 
span across the data security field a little bit and in unexpected ways. And the way that it does that is through what's called the individual mandate. Um, so essentially, you know, it includes that insurance companies can't, um, you know, drop you because of pre-existing conditions. And it also means that um, insur- insurance companies are required to um, not charge you more, right? So that, in, in, a set, in a sense, is actually a protection. For data abuse. Yeah, for data abuse. So say, like, you use your health data and your premiums go up 10x. That can't happen because you have the Affordable Care Act. You look at the Singapore government, and it's always important to look at it at everything in context. They have, you know, they have a really excellent healthcare system overall. Um, they're far ahead of the U.S. They spend a lot less on healthcare in general. They also have really high quality of life indicators. Um, so, you know, it. I guess it just depends on the context. Um, yeah, but what about? Insurance companies, hypothetically, of course, but still using this data to raise premiums on you, not deny you coverage due to a pre-existing condition, but just raise premiums overall because the data shows that all Americans are unhealthy or something. If you're saying the premiums premiums are going to go up 10%, your insurance company already has that information anyway. Um, that's where it goes. They may have it in fragments, and there may certainly be a delay in how that's being funneled into underwriting practices or how it's affecting your premiums. So you may be on a 30-day 30, 30 delay, um, but they have fragments of that data anyway um, because that's what insurance companies have, right? And they're, they're quite advanced in that respect. Um, so it's already priced in, but with the addition of a wearable, what you would get, and that's where the upside is, is you would have the ability to have an intervention in a timely manner that could, A, help with mortality and could help save your life at the end of the day, um, in which case your data, you know, doesn't really matter because you're dead, and two, um, it, it helps with costs, Right. And again, the U.S. healthcare system spends 32% of their costs on hospitals. That's emergency room visits. So it, you're hitting two birds with one stone. You're helping yourself, you know, save your life, and you're also bringing down costs. Um, and in the U.S., that's a big deal. But with this particular Fitbit Singapore partnership, I wouldn't be too concerned about data security and privacy, because my guess is that they are actually using it more as a medical device to prevent heart attacks before they're happening. And don't forget that this partnership is voluntary. So it's not like they are forcing you to give your information. They are encouraging you, and it's completely voluntary. And as a condition of that, you will have an informed consent process and you will be funneled into that health data um, system and that's, in, that's, that's something that you are giving them permission to do. So they're not forcing you to do this. It's completely say, voluntary. One devil's advocate to that, everybody knew they were giving their data to Facebook. Right. That's what I was going to say. Well, I mean, like so it, Julia, I think is long the, the partnership for uh, the benefits uh, with the the caveat that the they already given that the you know they already sort of all know where we are and their their facial like the data is out there already that the um, only benefit to the Singaporean government and its people 
who use this is a health benefit. So this is kind of like an upside move without any additional downside risk. I think it's a it can be a a really big ne- the the downsides outweigh the upsides because I no longer have control over um, if something goes wrong, right? Like if someone hacks into my account or uh, into my data and they can use it to do you know something and open a credit card or whatever they want, sure. But um, I'm more worried that they change it and then I'm not me. Uh, according to any number of databases, I, you can change the trajectory of people's lives and you would not be the wiser. I think those are real concerns. And I don't think governments are constructed to deal with them is the, the bigger concern. And that makes me think like a company like Fitbit, who is they're they're not placing the health outcome necessarily above th- their their motive for profit. As any company has the motive for profit, Fitbit's best interest isn't necessarily that the end user gets uh, entirely healthier. It's that the end user keeps buying it or you get governments who partner with you. Those motives are in conflict to me, like my personal motive and the motive of the company and the motive of the, the, the country are in, in conflict. But I think just, you know, with the bottom line is that all of this is, again, it's not about getting people to become more active or become more fit. It's about tracking them real time. And if you can monitor someone's glucose level real time, you know, you can actually see when those glucose levels and when your blood is becoming more acidic and, and you know, get there in time before they go into a diabetic coma. Um, if you are using it as a medical device, you can look at the person's heart rate. You can make sure that if the, if the person's having a heart attack in 20 seconds, get them in time. So I'm just saying with all that, again, there are upsides with better data and real-time data. Um, you can have more timely health intervention. Okay, for our second story, shareholders ain't the thing anymore, or so says the Business Roundtable, which is a business lobbying group. The group banged out quite the corporate missive on Monday titled Statement on the Purpose of a Corporation, where they revised the main tenet of Friedman economic theory that corporations are supposed to only care about shareholders. Now it's also workers, the environment, customers, suppliers, and also shareholders, of course. So we all got on the phone and talked about this for a while, and the main consensus was this seemed to be a rather disingenuous and narcissistic claim. Narcissistic because these CEOs think it's up to them and not the shareholders who technically own the companies to decide how a company interacts with its stakeholders. And also it's disingenuous because it shouldn't be an either-or. If, if these CEOs were actually using the shareholder mechanisms already in place, they wouldn't be doing things that were destructive to the communities they operate in and the environment that they operate in and the suppliers that they rely on. So I decided to call up Rick and Megan and record them telling me what a genuine statement on the purpose of a corporation would actually look like. And of course, they had some great ideas. You've got to see it factored into how they actually do business and how they assess risks and set out their business strategy. You know, This isn't really any different than how we look at ESG 
in general and how we have for years. It's, is it a thing off to the side that's nice window dressing or is it baked into how the company actually operates and thinks of itself? Over the coming months and years, and do we see any evidence that these companies start to shift to a more long-term view with a more holistic uh, accounting of what kinds of risks and measures they need to take to be sustainable over a very long term? and how they actually end up defining that. Because I, I think there is an interesting risk here of going out and taking a stand and putting your name on something like this and then opening yourself up. This comes back to some other discussions that we had, opening yourself up to criticism and loss of faith if you don't ho- hold yourself up to the standard that others now see you as, uh, as upholding or needing to uphold. Actions speak louder. You know, these CEOs can't, on the one hand, say what they've said, and then on the other hand, go back to the office and say, um, no, we don't think you should vote for the shareholder proposal that would uh, require us to be more accountable about our environmental impact. No, we don't think you should vote for the shareholder proposal that would make the election of the board of directors more subject to investor input. No, we don't think that you should a uh, vote for this shareholder proposal um, that would uh, make our paychecks more accountable to um, the performance results of the of the company. Um, they they can't go back to the office and say you know we're gonna we're gonna cut the workforce by another ten thousand people because um, we're spending too much on people uh, and now we're going to switch to a gig economy workforce where we don't have to pay any benefits and aren't we smart business people because we figured out this great way to cut costs and increase shareholder value. That That's not the kind of shareholder value that investors are looking for. Investors are looking for shareholder value that is sustainable. And sustainable means something that actually does serve um, the, the betterment of society, not just makes money, but does serve the 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 environment, uh, reduces environmental impact, um, pays more money to employees, enhances the economy in all of those myriad ways that investors have been talking about for so long, and which these CEOs have been actively fighting against. And that's all we got for the week. Wanted to thank Julia, Matt, Rick, and Megan for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you so much for listening and joining us. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe and rate and let us know what you think, whether or not that's good or bad, because we enjoy hearing it. Thanks again. Talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. 
and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.